Pastor Don and Jean, they're, they're asked to speak all over the, the, the world. I would say country, but it's the world. And they have a remarkable work in Uganda. And Pastor Don is my pastor. I love this man. And if you don't like my teaching, you blame him because I stole everything from him. Would you welcome Don McClure? Thank you, Governor. I'm, well, I, it's just wonderful to be here, see your facility, and to be able to share with you. Rob and Michelle have been part of our family for, I can't remember the year he actually came. We, we met him years ago when I was pastoring in Redlands. And I think 1990, 91 or something like that is when first met them. And then we moved to San Jose. They ended up moving up to San Jose. And he came on our staff there. And uh, there was never, ever a day without uh, joy to have them around us. And then to watch their family come, their children, and uh, then marriages and grandchildren. And uh, it's uh, the older you get. And uh, the more you realize what family uh, means to you. And, uh, you know, there are those, the Bible says, that stick closer than a brother. The, it's not just simply our physical family in this life. You realize the spiritual family God gives us is just uh, irreplaceable in what it means to you. So it's, a, it's wonderful to be here and to be able to share. This morning, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And... Uh, I see they're passing out Bibles. If you need here, you didn't get a Bible. You know the uh, oh, they're nice Bibles, hardbound. That's somebody's giving something out. You just take it and uh, you get sell them on eBay or whatever. You know, you always do something with them. So uh, I'm going to pick it up in Romans chapter four, verse sixteen. Romans four sixteen. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but also that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that he which had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, therefore... It was not imputed to him for righteousness. Uh, it was therefore imputed unto him for righteousness. But now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But for us also, to whom the Lord shall impute if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, who is raised again for our justification. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ, and how wonderful it is, Lord, to be able to gather together, to open up the Word of God, to have a place, Lord, where spiritually our lives are fed. We live in a, a world that drains us, that fights us, 
that exhausts us, that can put us through, Lord, all sorts of horrendous things like even this community has experienced. And yet one that when we come into your presence and sit before you, there's such hope. And Lord, we pray that you would open your word and strengthen each and every one of us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, there's something incredibly wonderful as, uh, you know, in our, our lives to be part of a family like uh, we are in the body of Christ, as I already mentioned. But to also realize it's not just simply the family here. But just as real as that, the Bible tells us we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That is, is that there's many here. There's many in the sense in God's presence when we open up his word and we uh, sit to realize there's this incredible company around us that have already gone before us, of which one day we will be with them and in their presence as well. You know, to stop and think, the Bible tells us one day we shall know even as we're known. Can you imagine walking around, you know, heaven one day, and I mean meeting all these patriarchs, these great heroes of the faith, these ones that we look at, and, uh, and, and it's been so obviously touched by their lives, and to meet them, and to know them. Uh, what an incredible thing uh, to stop and, and think about that. But with that, as well to realize they're not merely examples of, uh, you know, before us. They're not just merely patriarchs. They're not just simply great heroes of the faith. But uh, we tend to sometimes look at these characters, and we don't realize the parallel that there is in their life and in ours. Uh, we look at them, they're dealing with, you know, battles and wars and blood and geography and all sorts of things. And yet the very things that were actually going on within their heart and within their life, they're no different than the things that we have to go through in our life. The issues of trust and faith and dependence and love. They're the same things uh, that every generation has. And when God puts them there for us, they're that we might learn them in the application of what that means in our lives. I think we tend to look at people like Abraham or Moses or Joshua or Gideon or Hannah or Esther or, and the list goes on and not realize that the very same lessons that they learned and that they had to put into practice in their life are no different than what we also have to learn. And I think when we, when we open the word of God and we find ourselves, Lord, what do you have for me? I'm one of these guys growing up, uh, there was three boys in my family, three boys across the street, the father across the street. He was a coach for the Dodgers farm club. I was their bat boy. We all kind of hung around them. And I'd shag balls for Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale and Don Sutton and these, uh, you know, famous players. And you'd always dream, you know, of kind of, you know, I'm going to be them, you know. <laughs> and you grew up, I played a lot of sports. All I ever really did was just tear up my body, you know, trying to play sports. I was never that good at anything. <laughs> I just sprained and ripped and tore and broke, and I didn't even get trophies for it. It's rather pathetic. <laughs> but the, uh, but I, I remember well sitting in, you know, in, in practice and, in, uh, you know, the coach would bring us all into a room and there'd be a big chalkboard up in front. And it'd be, you know, with X's and O's, here's the offense, here's the defense. And every single one of us in the room were on that team, and we all had an assigned position. We all had some role. Every time he put something up at the chalkboard, it had an application to our life. And we were expected to listen. And if he caught us daydreaming or doing something else or not paying attention, immediately, you know, he'd call you out, give me 10, and there you are, you know, or go run a lap or, or something, because he was quite serious. As soon as that was over, we were going to suit up and we'd go out on the practice field and he would call that play. 
And we were all expected to know what that play meant and how we were to respond to it in our position, whether it was blocking, running, catching, you know, throwing, you know, or whatever else it was in it, we all had a role. There was the entire team, every person. Well, that's true in the body of Christ. You know, and you and I, we come in and we sit down here. I believe from God's perspective, he's, you know, he's up at the chalkboard, he's opening the word, and there's always an application. There's always something because we are all members of the team and he has no greater or lesser respect than he, for one than the other. The only difference is that some follow it. Some are serious, you know, about it when they, they turn, they walk out of here and they, uh, and, and, and the application of their life, their home, their marriage, their career, their neighborhood. They directly know the application. There is something there that God wants to apply to make them a better player. You might say a better you know, person on the field for him. Well, here as we look at Abraham and we look at his life, we're told here, this is also about us. Paul makes it very clear. I'm not just speaking about Abraham. He said, this is a promise unto us as well that will be imputed to us if we equally believe. And so here, when we look at what did Abraham have to do and to deal with in order to have things happen in his life that are common to all men, what was it that that God lays out here that that, that he was speaking to him about there that, that he needed to understand, he needed to apply? Well, the very first thing here that we're listed essentially is that David, or pardon me, Abraham, he had to deal with his past. In verse 17, it says, he believed even God. Who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which are not as though they were. And in verse 19, he considered not his own body, now dead, yet when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here Abraham, in order to have God implement within his life the things that he wanted to put in, the, the plan for his life, this incredible glorious desire that he had for him is that Abraham had to take his eyes off his own deadness. He had to, to take his eyes off of himself, all out of his inabilities, his, his incapacity in to perform anything. And that's one of the hardest things in life for every one of us. It's not that, that all of us have to deal with. There, in order to be able to, to, as he's looking at the Lord, and realize that God is calling somebody, and when he is calling him, he has absolutely no interest at all in their past, in their weakness, in their failures, in our inadequacies, when God looks at us and he calls us, you know, there he's, uh, and brings us on the team, so to speak, it isn't something where we've had all these tryouts and tryouts and tryouts and he's taken the pick of the litter or something. No, when God calls us and he puts us on the team, he is fully aware there that he has called people that have no ability in and of themselves. He had to learn there that there was nothing at all within him or about him that could ever merit what God wanted to do within his life. I think sometimes we forget that when God created man in the first place, Adam, he reached down into the dust, into the dirt, into the soil, and he took up and he fashioned a man. He had no expectations at all about it. Adam was dirt. He wasn't handsome dirt, smart dirt, dumb dirt, you know, powerful dirt, witty dirt. He was dirt. Common dirt, not better dirt than the pile of dirt over there or this pile. I, well, let's see, which pile should I take? No, it's just dirt. God was fully aware, I am going to put everything in it needed to make him in my image. I just need just the body, that's all. I'll do the rest. And that's never changed with God. None of Adam's, you know, children has God ever looked at any different. 
The only thing that is different is that after God created Adam and he reached for that dirt which had no mind within itself, no will within itself, no capacity within itself to argue or to think contrary or to believe or or not believe. Here God started with something that was fully subjected to it because it had no inner self-mind. Well, we have the we can argue, we can disagree, we can say no, we can say it can't happen to me. You've got the wrong dirt. You need better dirt, different dirt. But from God's perspective, when he looks at every one of us, he's there to where it has nothing to do with us. For as Paul goes on in verse 16, he says, therefore, it is a faith, a faith that it might be of grace. Hear what God wants there when he looks at a human being. He says, I've got a call. I've got a plan. I've got something for your life. Here is why you are on the team. There from God's perspective, it is going to, what he's going to do is going to be entirely dependent and working about that person's faith that God will gracefully do wonderful things. Now, the word grace, as you're no doubt aware, means unmerited favor. Here what God was going to do, he's going to stretch out, his, stretch out his hand. He's going to take that human being. He's going to pour himself into him. He's going to do incredible, wonderful things with him. And it's going to be purely because of everything that's contained within God. I, I provide the love, the wisdom, the power, the capacity, the enabling. I do it all. And I don't do any of it because there's anything at all within you. There isn't any reason that you've earned it. You merit it. I owe it to you. You deserve it. Or anything. He just says, I love you. I want to take and do incredible things of your life if you'll simply believe. And there, and have faith in, in grace and unmerited favor. I want to do something within you that there's no reason for you at all whatsoever to look and say, why me? And well, God says, why not you? Why not whoever I choose? I'm doing it all. It's not, I'm not looking to you for anything. And that's what, you know, fundamentally what Abraham's having to deal with. And then after he's beginning to respond to that, to really, the, the, the struggle there to really grasp that. It's kind of a lifelong struggle. It isn't something that just begins and ends in a day. Not only taking our eyes off of ourself, but, but, but keeping our eyes off of ourself. You know, the, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I, I'm making a radical assumption here at this point, but I would assume that the vast majority of you are born again. That the vast majority of you plan on going to heaven with all your heart. And you've got this incredible sense, I know when I die, I'm absent from the body, present with the Lord, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You, you, there, you, you believe the most arrogant things. You believe, you know, I mean, we, we, you look there, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, tomb, where is thy victory? We laugh at death. We mock it. <laughs> and somebody would look at us and say, really? Yes. You know, I take, when I die, don't worry. Just dig a hole, throw me in. I'm gone. I'll be in heaven. And you believe that eternally. Yes, I'm going to wake up in the image of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm a joint heir with him. And you believe the most incredible things in the world. And why do you believe that? And you believe it simply because at one point in your life, you realize you could not save yourself. You, could, you couldn't do anything to save yourself. You couldn't help. You had to be able to look and say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm absolutely 100% dependent upon Christ to save me. I could not save myself. Well, now the great struggle there is that we've, we've taken that step for the great thing. But God, they're looking at us and say, now why do we seem to have the daily problem? 
Why is it that you've, you've already taken something that cost me my blood? In order to redeem you, I had to climb out of heaven, come down in, into a human body, spend 33 years on this dust bowl of planet, gather all the sins of all the world of all time upon myself, go and to die for them and to die for you, shed my blood, you know, be separated from my father, and you take me up on that, realizing you could do nothing to do it yourself, and yet now you're trying to help me out on other things. I don't need your help. I didn't need your help then. I don't need it now. Would you please just take your eyes off yourself? Where we want to go and what we want to do is something I, I didn't even have to die to do what I still have yet to do in your life. I can just do it anytime. Why won't you believe me for that? Why is this struggle of taking and keeping? Why can't you keep your eyes off of yourself? And here Abraham, when God called him, you know, he had no capacity to do it. He had to take off of himself. He considered not his own deadness, nor the deadness, it says, of, of Sarah's womb. Here it was something there, you know, how long it took Abraham and Sarah to really come to this, you know, to, to realize we cannot produce a child. Now, they'd been married, we believe reasonably, over 50 years to this point. I mean, you would think there's a point to where you kind of look at each other and say, you know, honey, I, I don't think we're going to have kids. I don't think it's going to happen. Whether a year, nothing, two, five, ten, fifty, twenty years, thirty. Hey, we've, we've Googled it. Reproduction. We've gone to childbirthing classes. We've been to doctors. You know, we've, we've, we've read books on the topic. Uh, we've done everything, you know, we can do it. We're not happy. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, and it's amazing sometimes how long it takes people to arrive at that. God is amazingly patient with us waiting for us to come to the end of ourself, but here to come to there. And that's one of the most powerful and wonderful truths. Do you, can you look at your own heart and your own life and, and be able to say, God, I, I agree, I have nothing but deadness. I have no potential. I can't do anything. You must do it, and I believe you can. That's foundational. To God's blessing. Secondly, though, he had to not only be able to deal with his past and his own deadness, he had to deal with his present. He had to deal with a present condition there. And you say, well, how did he do this? Well, verse 17 says, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, he calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope. Believed in hope that he might be the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now here we have God taking this man out. There were the story, we're given it in Genesis 15, but there is into this incredible picture, incredible lesson that he gives there. He takes Abraham aside, you know, one night there and he takes him out and he shows him the stars. And sometimes, I'm sure we've all had those times where you're away from the city and all the city lights, maybe out, you know, out nowhere. And, and sometimes you can look up and it's almost like the, the sky is a sheet of white. You just look there and you realize the billions and billions of stars. Well, God takes Abraham out and he shows him the stars, countless, they're innumerable. And he tells him, he says, so shall thy seed be. How do you think about that? Here you've got a man, you know, all these years of life, no children whatsoever. God takes him out, 
no ability to do anything at all with this. And he tells him, this is what I have for you. And that's what he, that this is the challenge that Abraham had. And I believe our challenges are equal to that. They're no different with it. And the things there that within that God wants to tell us that he wants to have for our heart and our life. That, that we so easily reject and we know oh, that couldn't happen. That's impossible. God makes incredible promises, I believe, for our lives, our homes, our marriages, our families. And here he wants, you know, us, us to believe that. He wants us there to really look at every one of us. We're all on the, the team. We're all redeemed. He brought us in. He's clothed us in Christ. He's brought us into his presence. And the Bible says God's no respecter of persons. It isn't like he took Abraham. He said, I'm doing something special with Abraham. I don't believe there's anything special about this at all. I believe that every one of us, every one of us, that's a child of God, God takes us out and he, and he shows us something beyond our dreams, beyond anything, way so far, it's absurd, you know, that, that what he wants to do within our heart and within our life. But sadly, you know, I think so many people reject it and they, and they don't even ponder it. I, I believe one day when we get to heaven, there would be many who say, Lord, why didn't you ever take me out? Why didn't you ever do anything like that? For me, like you did for Abraham? I believe without question, God would say, I did. Many times. You never believed me. It was too absurd for you. That the only difference between Abraham and me or anybody else is the fact that our capacity to grasp the most impossible of things. And to believe that God has them for us. And there's so many things that he had. And here Abraham, when you watch his response to this, in the, in the picture that it is, we, we usually just look at this story in Genesis 15. It's just innumerable stars. But there's a greater truth that he's showing him here. God takes Abraham out, you know, to look there, and he shows him the stars. Hundreds of millions, I mean, these, all these galaxies, who knows what, you know, that is still out there that we know so little of. And yet he looks at him as if to say, Abraham, where do you think all that came from? Nowhere. The universe didn't create itself. It came from nothing. It never existed until it was in my mind and in my heart to do it. There was no creation, no sun, no moon, no stars, no sky, no galaxies, no planet. There was absolutely nothing until I said, let there be light. And just like that, it was. And here God, he looks at our lives absolutely blank. There's nothing at all in it. We look around at the absolute darkness, the emptiness, the void of it all. And then God says, I want to do something. And we say, it can't happen. But here God is showing Abraham, yes, it can. Where do you think they came from? I spoke them into existence. I'll speak what I want to into your life, into existence, if you will yet believe me. And I believe God has promises for us, all of us, every one of us. He doesn't redeem somebody uh, there in such a, a way to have a plan. If God spared not his own son for us, will he not give us all things, the Bible says. God has tremendous plans for all of us, tremendous things for our life, yet undone. Our homes, our marriages, our family, our children, our grandchildren, our neighborhood, our businesses. That when somebody looks there, and, and though we look, it's a blank slate, it's black, it's absolutely empty. But he says, so what? Can you believe me on what I can do? You know, every one of us, none of us have arrived. None of us are complete beings. We all have many issues and needs within our lives. There's no 
perfect, perfect marriage here. No perfect family. None of you have perfect children or perfect parents or perfect neighbors or perfect anything. It's funny, my wife and I, we've done, I couldn't even guess how many marriage conferences and people think we must have a great marriage. Well, we do. It's a good marriage. And, uh, it's, but it's certainly not perfect. But I would be the first one to tell you, my wife is coming along very well. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of her. I, I see great hope. But the thing is, is that when we just look at all that there is, and God says, what do you want for your life? What will you settle? Or is this what you're willing to settle with? That's it? No more? Well, then that's what you'll have. But here Abraham and his response, you know, to this, when God shows him this, this capacity and what he had yet there for his life. You know, the, I think when somebody sees that, I look here, you know, I walk in here today, I haven't seen the building, you know, before today. I've been hearing about it and things and in conversations back and forth. I hadn't seen it. My wife had seen photos of it and was just, and I hadn't even seen the photos yet, but she'd been telling me about it. But I come in and I look here and I see a fellowship, a body. I see a church and realize Pastor Ron, you know, years ago, God took him out. He started showing him things and, and he believed. And here, and, and he takes a step, and let's go, let's see what it is. And then not only start looking at Thousand Oaks, let's look at, you know, the city, let's look at the state. I mean, he's, he's all over the country. God has opened incredible doors to speak in, in the most incredible of places. But when somebody there and to share his truth, and when somebody realizes, God, the sky is the limit, eternity is the limit. I look at Pastor Craig, who I assume you're getting to know pretty well. In, in one degree or another, you've been a part of what he's been doing in Africa for so many years, but born and raised there, and yet to go back. If you went to Africa and saw what has happened through the years, he went back. He's born and raised there. His father died in Africa, and then he went back. And uh, there he was on my staff in San Jose for years, but then he went back to Africa. I always knew he was going back to Africa. His heart was always there. He was always seeing it. It was an unfinished thing that had yet to happen. And yet there to go and to, and to see and to believe for what God can do. That's what God has for all of our lives. But we must believe him. that such a thing. You know, I think, you know, I, if, say, you know, tomorrow, you know, Pastor Rob and I were driving around town or something. And, and while we're out, maybe having lunch, I say, oh, there, can we stop by the bank? Okay, we go in the bank. We're walking there and we into the bank and we're standing there waiting in line for a teller. But they open the vault and then in comes a Brinks truck and these guys come in. Piles of money and they're emptying it out there or something. We look in there and we see what's going on. And I say to Pastor Rob, Rob, you see that? Yeah, you, would you like some? Oh, sure. Rob, it's on me. Just go get whatever you want. Just take it. Josh, just go ahead. Go, 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 go. Well, Rob, he would immediately consider the source and laugh. <laughs> you just want me to get thrown in jail, don't you? Well, I, I don't know. I thought it'd be fun to see what happened. But anyway, but it, it, because nothing would happen. But if, for example, you know, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates got some of his CDs and started listening to him and touched his life, his marriage, his vision for why he's here, comes down, starts, you know, coming to church. And he comes in and out as he can. One time he's in town, they go to lunch. And he says, Pastor Rob, can, can we, can we, you do me a favor? Sure, what? Can we stop by the bank? I just got to go in there for a few minutes. Sure. They go by the bank only when they come to the bank. They're waiting for him outside. They, he didn't go get in a teller line. They take him right into the vault, his own vault. 
They begin to open it. And then, you know, the, the, you know the, uh, the Bill Gates, he gives him a suitcase. And he says, here, do me a favor. What? He says, just fill it up. Fill it up. with. Don't take the small stuff. Just big money. Just take all. Whatever. Take all. I, I've got, I don't know what to do with all this. I want to use it. And I know you'll use it right. you use it for the kingdom. you use it for all your, your lives, your family, the loved ones, the body, the, 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 the city. Take it. Fill it. No, I can't do that. No, no, no. No, really. I, please, please. No, no. I, did, I don't feel right about it. I'm not going to do it. And so he refuses. He goes home. He says, Michelle, the most interesting thing happened today. What was that? Well, Bill takes me to the bank, gives me a suitcase, fill it up, take it all. And she says, yeah, yeah. What'd you do? Well, I didn't take it. I said, well, you didn't take it. Why didn't you take it? I don't know. I just didn't, I didn't feel right about it. I tell you, tomorrow you would find Pastor Rob's bloody beaten body in an alley somewhere. <laughs> there, you didn't believe him. You know, well, that is exactly, I believe, on how many of us will feel one day in God's presence. On how he took us in. We sat in his word. He opened it up week by week. He says, here's what I have for you. And we just sat there listening to a play that he wanted to put in our life. He wanted us to enact. We didn't do it. It wasn't for me. Oh, it was a great story. Quite interesting. Yeah, they boy, these, these, the Bible says, oh, miraculous things, incredible things. But here, when, but God wants to teach all of us this. He took Abraham into this incredible environment, a man there who had been well proven. You will never have this happen within you. And yet when you look there, this is what God wanted not, not only to teach Abraham, but all of us. And it ought to be that when we look at him and we realize who he is and what he's done for us, we have taken him up on the greatest thing of all, his death on the cross, his blood shed. And I believe God says, why don't you believe me? And Abraham, when he did this, he was not a foolish man. When you look at what God put his patriarchs and these heroes of the faith through, they weren't fools. When David went before Goliath and he took on Goliath, even though the entire Israeli army is there paralyzed, afraid, and they see this massive a man there. David wasn't some foolish little upstart just jumping into the thing to say, I'm going to do something. When Elijah stood before 450 prophets of Baal alone and he mocked them, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a fool. When Gideon takes 300 before the Midianites of 120,000, he wasn't a fool. In fact, David, when he went before Goliath, he was the only intelligent person there. Everybody else was a fool. Everybody else looked at the deadness of their own body. Everybody else looked at what they were not and they failed to see who was. And David saw it all. David was the only smart person there. He took it all in. He could embrace it all. He looked there and he says, you know, buddy, you come to me with a sword and a spear. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts whom thou hast defied. You think you're going to walk out of here today? I don't think so. This isn't you against me. It's you against the God who you're mocking. And when a Christian looks there and realizes their home, their family, their life, and how the enemy wants to mock and tear it down, and say it will not be. And we settle in on that. Or whatever it is. And realize that God has this for. He's got an equally great plan. And he's looking for us simply to do the smartest thing we'll ever do. Trust him. And Abraham's faith, it's also wonderfully intense. It tells us in verse 18, it says, who against hope. 
believed in hope. Humanly speaking here, what this means is, is humanly speaking, he was hopeless. Abraham had to now take his entire life and put it into God's hands. To believe that God could do it. Who against hope, you know, against, you know, uh, they're what could not be humanly. He still believed in what could be spiritually accomplished. Paul goes on and he tells us a little bit more about the concept of hope and hopelessness there. In, in Romans 8.20, he says, For the creature was made subject unto vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same in hope. Here the Bible tells us God created every one of us dirt. <laughs> he created all of us empty, all of us dead. There, you know, there, uh, and there for the very cause that we would ultimately become desperate for him to supply everything that God had to put in dirt in the first place, that he had to put into Adam, that there would be something there that we would say, God, you did it for Adam, do it for me. Verse 24 of Romans 8 says, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for that which a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? But we hope for that which we see not. Then do we with patience wait for it. In other words, there are things in all of our lives there that right now, against hope, we have no hope. We've, we, 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 hope you know, we've come to the realization just as much as Abraham, it's not going to happen. Humanly, this is not going to happen. I have a proven history of this cannot happen. All of us. And with that set of facts there, it says, who against hope believed in hope. And he says, now hope that you can see is no longer hope. It's, no, it's only now when you look there and say, God, I hope in you. He then goes on and he says in verse 27, likewise the Spirit himself. He helps our infirmities, uh, for we know not how we should pray and what we ought, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Here he takes this hopelessness and he says, many times all you do is just groan. You just say, oh God, oh God, my children, my grandchildren, my neighbors. There is no hope. I see no hope. I see no capacity. I see nothing in this. And yet, God says the Spirit, he gives us groanings. He intercedes for us. Say, Lord, by your Spirit, would you help me? And then in Romans 12, he goes on in the same book. You know, when touches back on hope, he says that we are to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. In other words, hear what Abraham and you and me, all of us, there that we rejoice. We're able to look there what is not yet and say, I joy in it. God, you've spoken to me. And then also, though, he says, and you're patient in tribulation. That while you have this great expectation and hope that God has spoken to you, you now, though, at the same time said, and I'm also patient for it to happen. And in the trials and all the things that says it's not happening, that reminds me there's still no children. You know, and, and then he says, and continuing instant in prayer, that now in that hopelessness that seems to come back, Lord, I pray, I give this to you. And I believe as hard as that would have been for Abraham, so also many times for us. You met at 75 years old, we're going to have children. Wonderful. Excited. 76, 77. Any children? No, no children yet. 80. Any children? No, no children. 85, no children. 90, got any children? No, no children. 95, how many children? No children. And yet rejoicing in it. You imagine coming down the road one day and here's somebody 95 years old, they're sitting there 
And they're just singing. There's a, there's a joy. They've got a smile. What are you so happy about? Oh, my children. Oh, yeah. How exciting. Children. How many do you have? Oh, we don't have any yet. How old are you? 95. How long have you been married? Uh, 75 years now. Yes. <laughs> you just walk by and say, well, he's, he seems happy. <laughs> Leave him alone. But yet that's the absurdity of the Christian as well. That God looks at us and he gives us things out there that will never happen until he moves. And Abraham, we're told there in verse 19, that Abraham had to exercise that trust. Verse 19, he says, And be not weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here now he looks there and he had taken his eyes entirely off of himself. And yet, this is, you know, uh, given to us here in this verse, uh, there in this trust and off of Sarah. But interesting, verse 20. One of the most interesting verses in the Bible to me. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Here on one hand, the New Testament tells us here, he weighs the human impossibility of becoming a father against the impossibility that God could lie. He looked there at, in a sense there, what I, I, it looks absolutely impossible to me, but I know something more impossible than that. And that is God cannot lie. And therefore, God's got himself in a predicament here. Not me. I didn't promise this. I didn't make it up. God did. What makes this verse so interesting is when you're looking at the New Testament record and then you go back to the Old Testament record. Because the Old Testament record tells us there that, uh, that Abraham and Sarah, when they're not having children, the years have gone by, and now it's gone on for quite a few, there that one day Sarah comes to Abraham and says, Honey, it's not going to happen. Let's take Hagar, one of my handmaids. You have a child with her, and we will call that the child of promise. And Abraham seemed to be a willing fellow. <laughs> okay. Whatever you say, honey. But anyway, so they go and they have a child. Ishmael. Genesis 16, 16 says, And Abraham was fourscore and six years old, 86 years old, when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abraham. That's the last verse of Genesis 16. The next verse in the Bible, Genesis 17, 1. When Abraham was 90 and nine years old, the Lord appeared unto Abraham, and he says, I am the Almighty God. You shall therefore walk before me, and be thou perfect. Thirteen years. Thirteen years, this man who, with his faith, and he trusted God, a friend of God, and yet here, there's no communication recorded between the two of them for thirteen years. When Abraham decided, I've got to help God out. We'll, we'll do it our way. And there he took his life into his own hands. And he then did it his own way. The next thing we know is that there we find Abraham, there's a silence. No word from heaven. No fellowship. No communion. Absolute silence for 13 years. God breaks the silence. 13 years later, he comes to Abraham when he's 99 years old. And he says to him, I'm the almighty God. You walk before me and be perfect. And then he goes on and he says, now, you're going to have the child. Abraham responds because now he had Ishmael, who's now 13 years old. 
He turns, he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He says, I've already got one going here. Let's just take Ishmael. I'm, we're way ahead of you on this, God. <laughs> well, God, in the, you know, the New Testament tells us, it explains to us that, uh, that uh, Ishmael was a product of the flesh. His own efforts to help God out. And God rejected it because it wasn't his. And there, you know, the, the, some of us, you look here and now, the, but yet you knew, look at the New Testament now. Here it says, Abraham, he staggered not at the promises of God. You want to say, what? I don't get it. He staggered not. I would, I would say this should qualify in the stagger box. Well, when he does this, a thing like this, and Sarah, when they completely take it on themselves to do it. And, and yet, the New Testament, he staggered not. Now, we know the Holy Spirit wrote both records. He wrote both. One of them was as it happened. And the other one was the Holy Spirit's recollection of it in the New Testament when that was written. Which tells us what? Did he stagger or not? He staggered not. Not because he never staggered in this life, but because in God's record, let God be true and every man a liar. When we come and we failed and we've blown it or whatever else, and we come to him and we get it right, he takes our sin, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the depths of the sea. He hides it behind his back. And he says, behold, I'll remember it no more. It's done. And so here God looks there. And, and Abraham can say, well, God, what are, aren't you upset? No. I have no record of it. Let's just get back into the plan now. It's forgiven. It's blotted. Some of you may feel that what you have done in your life, in your own struggles or unbelief or taking your own life in your own hands or resolving your own problems as, as God is through with you. That's not true. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, the Bible says. God looks still at every one of us and he says, I want to take you out under the stars and I want to remind you why you are alive. And when we can go out there realizing he is taking a dead man and bringing them into a life. Alan Redpath used to call a dead man, a Christian, a dead man on furlough. <laughs> Somebody that's given up their life to Christ and says, all right, what do you want to do with it now? And that's God's plan. That's his desire for every one of us. And then the, the application of it, finally, he tells us in verse 23, he says, Now, this was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. He said, Now, this isn't here for Abraham anymore. I'm done with that one. We've closed that case. I'm only mentioning it now, that story, because that isn't just Abraham's story. That's your story. It's the same story with every one of my children there that now, that if you will believe on him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, and who delivered him for our offenses, who was raised again for our justification. When you can look there and say, did Jesus die for me? Yes. Was he raised? Did he die for my offenses? Yes, he did. Was he raised for my justification? Yes. He has a plan for me, yet unfulfilled. I'll never forget, I hadn't been a Christian very long. I got, came to the Lord when I was in college. 
The one day I was home from, I'd go back and forth during, you know, and stay on weekends at home. And, uh, but one time I'm back home and I would always go to church with my family now when I was there. But one time I'm at home and I, I can't remember how the scene all happened. I just remember incredibly on how it hit me for the first time that Christ died for me and me alone. It, I, and, and to me, the thought there that Jesus died for me and it was personal. I, to me, it had always been for God so loved the world. That Christ died not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. That here the Lord looks and he says, in this incredible mass of people, the hundreds of millions he's going to save. And then collectively, I just heard about the deal and got in on it. That's how it was for me. It hadn't been personal, but something there happened to where it was like the Lord spoke. No, I died for you. And it hit me like, you know, I'm carrying on this conversation kind of in my heart. You mean you would have died for me if I was the only sinner and clearly the Lord, yes, I died for you. And if you had been the only one to be redeemed, yes, I would have died. I died for you. I died for everyone individually. It just ends up corporately involved. And I couldn't believe that. I couldn't grasp it. And I found myself there when I realized that is true for some reason. I turned there and I said, Lord, I can't believe it. I can't believe that you would go out of your way for me like this. And it was like the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, I didn't go out of my way for you. Well, if you didn't go out of your way, what do you call it? He said, you are my way. Didn't go out of my way. I have no other way than you. And you know, God, I believe, looks at every one of us today and he wants to say, you are my way. You. Just as much as I took that one out and showed him the stars. Now I put him there and I want to tell you what I have for you. Believe me. I know you're nothing. You must know I'm everything. And trust in me. And let's see what I'll do with your life. I need nothing but for you to love me as I love you. And trust me. 